essentially practical people. They have limited patience for abstruse theology. They want practical help in their daily lives. And uh, that has a lot that is good about it. Our daily lives are vitally important to, to God as this passage makes clear. The Bible speaks very, very highly of practical wisdom. We often need to think uh, about how to live in the real world. But I think there is a danger if, if, if such practical Christianity is over-emphasised. The, the great question for us as Christians is not really about what our behaviour should be because, to be honest, we know that bit, don't we? We should always love our spouse, always respect authorities, always work diligently, give generously, pray fervently, always be joyful, gracious, gentle and uh, all the rest. On it goes. The great question is not what should we do but how can we do it? And if our whole answer to that is in the form of sort of practical hit, tips on daily behaviour, I think we generate a big problem. In fact, one of two big problems in different people's lives. There are some who are very self-disciplined, who can actually take those practical tips and, um, and uh, live them out reasonably successfully. but actually they often become self-righteous, pharisaical even, and lack some of those essential characteristics of Christian life, like humility and gentleness. And then there are many more of us, myself included, who find it, frankly, almost impossible to uh, implement all of those uh, wonderful, helpful hints that um, uh, so many are, uh, are prone to give us. And you see... If that's all there is, we slip into guilt and demoralisation. Actually, what we've done, if in fact all of our thinking is just about um, how practically uh, to, to, uh, to live good lives, what we have done without um, uh, thinking about it is we have substituted real godliness for regulations, for rules. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 13, these rules have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Practical tips are helpful, but they cannot be actually the lifeblood of our lives. Actually, I've noticed a, a pattern which I see repeated again and again. Those people who only want practical tips on how to live have almost always become bored with reading their Bibles. Because um, they read the letters of Paul, for instance, and they find themselves wading through acres of theological stuff at the beginning, and when finally, with a sigh of relief, they get to the practical stuff at the end, they find it incredibly demanding, and yet frustratingly short on those very helpful hints that they want. 
They felt bored at the beginning of the letter and completely condemned at the end of it. So if they read any Christian literature at all, they they pick up a simple, practical how-to book. And let me say, such books are very useful because they often give wise insights into how to live in the modern world. But if that is our only diet, then we've actually missed what... um, what the, ele- uh, what, what the Americans call the elephant in the room. Something that is blindingly obvious and yet which we tend to look straight past. Again and again, the Bible tells us it is our knowledge of Christ which helps us to live that, that good life. It is our delight in Christ which empowers goodness. It is our confidence in Christ which gives us confidence to take risks in our lives. It is our admiration of Christ which makes us want from the depths of our hearts to follow in him. It is our new life in Christ created by the Holy Spirit which enables us to do all of those practical things that the Bible does talk about. That's one of the key important messages of Colossians and it actually continues even through these much more practical parts of the letter that we've come to now. Today we complete our study of uh, this letter to to the Colossians. It's in my mind that we might actually come back um, to this book to look in more detail at this latter part um, of of Colossians sometime uh, in 2006 to spend a little more time meditating on families and work and uh, the other other practical things that Paul says. Um, If you want that, Tell me, if we get sufficient people to say that they want that, we will make sure we timetable it in uh, over the summer. But today, we're going to just have to survey this end of the book and to to get a, a main feel of what it says. And as we survey it, we must notice this central thing. In every area of our life, those practical, down-to-earth areas of our life, the key thing is that Christ must be at the centre. I want to uh, summarise Paul's vision for these Christians' lives under two main headings. In chapter 3, verse 18 to 4, verse 1, he says, every part of life must be lived for Christ. And in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, he says, every opportunity must be taken for Christ. And then we are going to spend just a little bit of time looking at, uh, from verse 7 onwards to the end, to look, to just get a glimpse of some of the practical realities that Paul faced and as he lived his Christian life as, as a Christian with other Christians. Paul's vision then, Firstly, is that uh, every part of life is to be lived for Christ. In our marriages, wives, verse 18, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh with them. In wider family life, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And in the workplace, which for many in the Roman world was literally slavery. Um, 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Or Masters, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. We could gain massive benefit from thinking long and hard about all of those things. And, we're, and as I say, we may well do that. In marriage, Paul puts his uh, finger on some particular problems there are. Stroppy wives, do you notice? And harsh husbands. Paul uh, puts a, a similarly uh, insightful finger on, on parent-child problems. Rebellious children, he singles out, and, and um, uh, fathers who embitter their children and discourage them. Absent, absentee fathers who are, who are married to the workplace as much as the family embitter their children. Disengaged fathers uh, discourage their children. And Paul says all sorts of, uh, says really demanding things about the workplace, doesn't he? He doesn't encourage slaves to become freedom fighters, for instance. Though elsewhere he makes it plain he's against slavery. But while slavery is an unalterable reality, he encourages them to be responsible and honest and obedient. Demanding stuff for us who work in difficult possibly degrading jobs under unfair circumstances. It's just not changeable. Then don't carp all the time, he says. Be like those slaves who work responsibly. But you see, if we only focus on how to behave we missed that elephant in the room. Paul's emphasis in everything here is that Christ must be at the centre of everything we do. Wives' behaviour, says Paul, is to be what is fitting in the Lord. Children are to do what pleases the Lord. Slavers, slaves are to work, at work out of reverence for the Lord. They are to consider their work as Jose said, for the Lord, not men. They are to work for an inheritance from the Lord. If they are, they are warned that any wrongdoing will be repaid by that same Lord. Masters are reminded that they have a master above them, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key thing that Paul wants to communicate to them. And yet is the, it is the thing we so easily miss. Imagine a husband who is trying to love his wife as the Bible says that he should. But uh, frankly she is uncooperative, she is sharp-tongued, she is unwilling to show him either respect or affection. Or imagine a wife who tries to love and honour her husband as the Bible says. But he is brash, thoughtless, emotionally distant and dismissive of her. Imagine that these wronged spouses each read um, a self-help book and it is a good and wise book which has, which has uh, turned around many a marriage. A marriage in that each, each one 
tries to put that wisdom into action. But their respective partners are not interested. His sacrificial love is trampled on. Her affection is brushed aside and ignored. happens, you know. It happens in so-called Christian marriages. And actually, those valiant Christian partners find in many ways their marriage gets more difficult, not more easy. Because whilst they made little effort, then they could just uh, get on with life with perhaps dull resignation. But now that he's giving his heart to her and she's still biting his head off, now that she is actually really trying to make an effort to show loving affection to her and he's still turning away and turning the telly on, Dull resignation turns to anger. And what are they to do? But now imagine that each one of those has actually learned this lesson Paul is talking about. That they are first and foremost to live for Christ. And as that husband cares for his uh, uh, belligerent wife, he draws massive encouragement from Christ's personal promise of reward and friendship. As that wife pours herself out for her brutal husband, she has the comfort of knowing Christ is pleased, he, uh, that, that, that he loves her better than any husband. They may not actually at the end of the day have successful marriages because frankly it takes two to tango but there is a massive contentment in knowing that Christ is pleased even delighted in how we are living their lives. I have known more than one sorely abused spouse who could go to bed singing with delight in their heart at night because they knew Christ was pleased with how they had lived that day though their partner had not noticed it at all. And their name will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Same goes for the workplace. Oh, it's great if we have a good job and a good wage, job satisfaction, pleasant working hours, but lots of people don't. don't. They have bosses who are obnoxious, jobs that are boring and horribly stressful pay, which barely covers the bill. And if we, frankly, if we meditate on that and become bitter, uh, we become bitter and demoralised. But you see, none of us comes near the situation that slaves often were in in the first century. Paul tells them how to work with joy in their hearts. They have a boss who is kind and generous, who sympathises 
uh, who sympathises us with us in a difficult workplace, who gives us rewards which are out of this world, frankly. Knowing Christ keeps us going. There is nothing more empowering and liberating than living before an audience of one. And notice too that this is a vision for the whole of life. Christ is is not interested in us just living a sort of religious life on Sundays uh, and, and occasionally at other times and then getting on without any thought for him the rest of the life. He is interested in how we live at work, how we live in our families, how we care for parents and children. Um, he is interested in what is done when nobody else sees us. The whole of life lived for Christ. See, one of the things you find, at least in non-Christian self-help books, is, um, in the end, advice that you need to cut and run. In the end, if your marriage is not working out, despite your best efforts, get out of it. In the end, if your job is not what you want, then by the power of your own uh, um, mind and will, get yourself a better one. But it's not that simple. Sometimes we are stuck in a job. And our call to faithfulness in marriage is far higher than the world calls us. Only Christ will help us. Every part of life lived for Christ. Paul also then moves on, keeping Christ absolutely central, saying every opportunity in life is to be taken for Christ. He seeks their support, for instance, in his particular ministry. Verse 3. Pray for us too, he says, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He is in prison. But the most important thing is not his liberty, he says, but taking the opportunity to proclaim Christ. He wants them to pray for that. In the letter that... um, Uh, he sends with this one, which we call Philemon. He makes it plain that he wants this man, Philemon, to um, uh, support him financially as well. God's church is called particularly to support the teaching and proclaiming of the word of God, prayerfully and practically. It is one of our opportunities that we are called to take as God's people together for Christ. We're in a period here of expansion in, uh, in the ministry. Um, two relatively new youth clubs, Mothers and Toddlers is absolutely overflowing, you know. There's, there's over a hundred families now on its books. Um, and next week, you're, the, if you're here, the live manger will be absolutely jam-packed. Morning and evening congregations are both swelled by nearly 10%, uh, 20% in the in the last months. We need to be praying. There are significant financial entailments too. 
American pastor Rick Warren says that church leadership is like surfing. Waves of opportunity come, he says, and uh, if you're not a skilled surfer, they'll just dump you in the water upside down. The skill is to surf those waves. We have an opportunity as a church to uh, be surfers as the Lord brings us along so many um, uh, so many opportunities. Pray for it. We will need to give for it as well. And there are opportunities, he says, to be taken by each of us personally in our own lives. Be wise, verse 5, in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Notice he doesn't expect them to be necessarily proclaimers like he is, but he does expect them to be wise in the way that they handle those who don't know Christ, the outsiders, as he puts them. He does expect them to make the most of every opportunity. In particular, he expects their speech to have the softness and gentleness of grace, but the flavour-enhancing bite of salt. See that? Let your conversation be always full of grace, but seasoned with salt. And notice, notice too that Paul is, is n- not expecting them to be constantly raising the subject of Christ in some artificial way. If they are gracious and they are salty in the way that they speak day to day, there will be opportunities <coughs> for them. Their job, he says, is to answer everyone in verse 6. What great opportunities we have at Christmas. What great opportunities so many of us have at work, amongst our friends and so on. Are our words full of grace? Have we learned to to speak clearly and sharply at times? So to give flavour and savour to what we say. Let's be praying for that. That is Paul's vision for his people. Every part of life live for Christ. It's the only way we can live, as the Bible says. Every opportunity taken for Christ. But finally, as we get to the end of this letter, I want us to see... uh, as well some of the realities of life in Christ there's this list at the end of all sorts of people who are with Paul or whom he knows who he sends greetings from and to they are a fascinating group (coughs) there are some who are absolutely solid, reliable people. There is Tychicus, for instance, in verse 7, or Aristarchus in verse 10. They get mentioned elsewhere as reliable men who travelled the eastern Mediterranean in the service of, of churches. 
Often they're taking money from one place to another. Then there is Epaphras in, in verse 12. We've met him before. He was, um, he was the man who had planted the churches in uh, at least Colossae and probably Laodicea and Hierapolis. And he, for all his life, as far as we know, was devoted to that little corner, a little group of cities uh, or towns up there at the top of the, the Lycus Valley. He was famous there, unknown elsewhere. Or there is uh, Nympha who gets a mention in verse 15. She supports the church by accommodating its um, meetings, no doubt uh, being a major financial donor as well. God's church is built on solid people who may not be widely known in the kingdom of God, but who are absolutely vital for it. Is that you? Could that be you? If that could be you, you see there is a great commendation waiting for you from Christ. Because he's noticed. He's seen. That reliable service. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then there are others who have more glorious ministries. Luke is mentioned in verse 14. He's the Luke who wrote Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. Or Mark is mentioned in uh, verse 10, almost certainly the author of Mark's Gospel. Perhaps you personally have gifts that God could greatly use. Now I'm no doubt that there are some here with those gifts. It's a matter for us to uh, devote them to Christ. But actually this list of names as well reveals some really tough stories too. Let me just tell you a couple of them. One's the story of Mark who wrote the Gospel. Some years before this, Mark had actually deserted the Apostle Paul. Paul at that time had concluded that Mark was not fit as a messenger of the Gospel. There had been a terrible row between Mark's cousin, uh, 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 Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas over it and they'd gone their separate ways. Sometimes there can be embarrassing strife in God's church. Paul knew that. He calls us to very high ideals, but he knows the reality too. It's actually all the more wonderful then that Mark is, is here with the Apostle Paul. Mark has proven that he is useful in the, in the service of the Gospel. Paul specifically says uh, in a later letter to Timothy, that Mark is useful to him. And Paul was well prepared to have his assessment re-evaluated. He did not write Mark off for the rest of his life. You need not be written off. Though there may be real failure in your life. 
God is a God who forgives and restores and can give you back what you have wasted. But then there is another um, tough little story here in this list. It's the story of Demas verse 14. Later in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 4 Paul says that Demas has deserted him because he loved the world. Interestingly here Demas is one of the few people in this list who doesn't get a particular word of praise from Paul. Perhaps even at this stage Demas was starting to have a bit of a wobbly. Most people who finally walk away from Christ have a long lead-in period. A period in which excuses are made. A period in which um, other Christians, particularly the church, are blamed. A period in which private moral failures are justified. And then finally when all the uh, pieces of self-justification are all in place the desertion happens. I looked at an old photo of the, the, the church this week. It wasn't that old. But I thought what had happened since that photo was taken and there was exactly that mixture that we see here amongst us. There were people who continued to be absolutely rock solid, firm supporters, pillars of the church who I know are going to get great praise in eternity. There are one or two people who, who um, have gone on to more glorious service There have been painful setbacks. There has been wonderful progress sometimes. And there has been a smattering of desertion of Christ. That is what happens in the real world. You see... That's why Paul so passionately again and again calls people to love Christ. Because he knows that no amount of church organisation no no amount of wonderful self-discipline will keep people on the road that they should be on if there are not hearts that love Christ perhaps Paul's uh, most important word to us is his word to Archippus 
chapter 4, verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. We don't know what that work was. I don't know what work you have in the Lord. But I know that God has given you a role. I know that God has given you something to do with your life. And I know that he is saying, complete it. Bring it to completion. It is easy to start as a Christian. But the prize gets for those that finish the uh, the, the, the cross the finishing line. And did you see the last three words that he said? In the Lord. As you delight in Christ, as you know Christ, as you are supported and encouraged by Christ, as you are forgiven by Christ and picked up again and set on that road which is your life, that is what will enable you to complete the life God has given you. See to it, he says, that you complete it. And you will only complete it in that marvellous relationship which Scripture calls being in the Lord.